Well, good morning again, everyone. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15? Now, we have been saying for the last few weeks that uh, in John chapters 13 through 16, Jesus is giving his farewell address to his disciples. At this point in John's Gospel, we're about maybe, I don't know, 10 or 11 hours from the cross. And so he wants to stress to them one last time the most important things he has taught them over the course of his ministry. Now, their hearts were troubled by this point. Say, so why were their hearts troubled? Well, earlier in the evening in chapter 13, uh, he said to them that one of them was going to betray him. He didn't, they, he didn't tell them which one. We know it was Judas. But one of them was going to betray him. He did mention Peter by name and said that Peter, who was the unofficial leader of the group, uh, right under Jesus, of course, but Peter was a very strong guy, and Jesus said that, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And then the Lord really dropped a bombshell on them when he said, and I'm going away, and you guys can't come with me. Not yet. I mean, you know, I'll come back for you, but uh, I'm leaving, and you can't go with me. So... Needless to say, their hearts were so overwhelmed at the magnitude of these revelations that they just slipped into like a depression. And the Lord, of course, knew their hearts, and so he spends most of chapter 14 comforting and reassuring them by giving them some promises, some great promises, right? A few examples would be, and we've already looked at these, I'll just give you a few. He promised he was going to go away to prepare a place for them and that he would come back and take them to that place. They would do greater things, he promised, greater works than he had done because he was going to his father. He promised that they could ask the father anything in his name for the work of the kingdom and that he would make sure they received it from the father. He promised that they would be given resurrection life and power to do the work he was commissioning them to do in his name. And give you one more, he promised that they would be given divine knowledge to understand all that he had taught them while he was with them. And so he gave them these fantastic promises to comfort and encourage their hearts in his absence. But then, guys, he began to give them some promises that weren't such a blessing to hear. And uh, we started looking at those in verse 18. He promised that the world would hate them and uh, would set itself against them because they belonged to him. He told them that one, being one of his, to be one of his disciples was to be the target of the world's hostility, that as they went into the world as lights, uh, God's beacons of truth, they could expect the darkness of Satan's kingdom to uh, hate and persecute them. Now, the implication was the only way to escape the world's hostility was to either dim or hide the light altogether, both of which were unthinkable, because he had said earlier in his ministry that you're the light of the world, and a city on a hilltop can't be hidden. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, so it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, he said, you're the light of the world now, and you need to go out and by your good works glorify your Father in heaven. So... That wasn't even an option. Of course, a lot of Christians fall into that, and they begin to dim the light or hide it because they're afraid of the persecution. They don't want to lose their friends. They don't want to, uh, you know, commit social suicide. And that's sad. Uh, we have been saved to let our light shine. 
But now I'll draw your attention to chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus said, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Verse 1, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. Now, when he said, These things I have spoken to you, he's uh, referring back to what he had just said at the end of chapter 15, verses 18 to 25, how that, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you also. All right? They've hated me without a cause, they're going to hate you as well. So he told them that and but here's the thing I, let me just say this when you've lived a life of, of emptiness and um, sorrow maybe depression uh, maybe alcohol or drug abuse is in your past uh, loneliness a life of maybe wandering aimlessly through life without any sense of purpose or direction and then somebody introduces you to Jesus and you receive him into your heart as your savior a miracle takes place right the Bible says, old things have passed away, all things have become new. You're a new creation in Christ. And nobody's got to tell you that because it becomes immediate almost instantly. I mean, it becomes obvious, I should say, almost immediately that something has just happened. Um, you know? I mean, something in your heart is different. And, and that's, it's a miracle that's taken place. Now, the result is you want to share Jesus with everybody you know and love, Right? Jesus, who is the answer? I've been looking all my life for the answers to the questions of life, like, you know, why am I here? What is life really all about? And most importantly, what's going to happen to me when I die? Well, now, as Christians, we have the answer. Jesus is the answer to all of that, right? And so now you want to share this good news, this life-changing information we call the gospel with your family and friends, uh, your co-workers and neighbors, you know, everybody in your sphere of, uh, of uh, influence, you nat naturally think that they're going to be as excited about Jesus as you are. How naive we were, right? How naive some of us were. You see, Jesus wants us to know up front that that's often not going to be the case. That this will not be the common response you're going to get from people who are in this fallen world when you set out to tell them about jesus you're excited he's changed your life you now have the answers to life's deepest questions but when you go out into the world you're trying to answer questions they're not even wrestling with for the most part some are some are some are just too busy having a party too busy just wrapping themselves in all kinds of material uh, possessions and all kinds of other pleasures they're living in the moment and here you come with the ultimate eternal truth. And often they're not interested. Not only are they not interested, Jesus said, you're going to open yourself up for persecution. Persecution. But that's exactly what Jesus wanted his disciples to know and to be prepared to face so that they didn't stumble, verse 1. They didn't stumble. The Greek word translated as stumble is a word we get our English word scandalized from. It's a Greek word that means to cause someone to experience anger and or shock because of what they because of what has been said or done. Guys, Jesus Christ was always up front with his disciples. And anyone who was thinking about being one of his disciples. Why? Because he always wanted them to count the cost first before becoming one of his disciples. 
Therefore, he always laid it out. He, he told them the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And then he said, pray about it, think about it, before you come after me, right? But our Lord and Savior never wanted to trick somebody into following him. Because he knew that wasn't going to last. How sad when churches, or even Christians, try to almost trick people into following Christ. You know, promising them, hey, to become a Christian... Man, you accept Jesus, he's going to give you the biggest house in the neighborhood and the nicest cars and your business is going to explode. You're going to become wealthy, you know, and all this stuff that Jesus never promised. But they become salesmen for Jesus. God save us from salesmen for Jesus. Jesus doesn't need salesmen. He just needs people that are going to share the truth with those around them. If they want to receive Christ, great. If they don't, well, at least we didn't, you know, try, try to trick them into following Christ. So right up front, he, he gives them this information. Now, then he went on to say something remarkable. Remarkable. And not in a, in a good way, but remarkable. Verse four, uh, verse 2, he, Jesus went on to say, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God's, excuse me, will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because uh, they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going away. And I have to fill you in. I have to tell you what's coming. He was prophesying. He was prophesying about what was going to be coming their way in the future. The thing about Bible prophecy, guys, that's important to understand, is that many times there's a short-term partial fulfillment and then a long-term ultimate fulfillment. This is especially true with end times prophecies. You don't have to turn there, but Luke chapter 21, where Jesus is talking about end times things, gives commentators fits. Because he begins by talking about things that were going to happen within about 30, 35 years into the future when the temple was destroy, uh, destroyed and so on, 70 AD. But then he starts talking without a break. He starts talking about the very end when the Antichrist shows up. And so there's a lot of Christians that, that want to lump it all together. He's talking about the same thing at the same time. And now you have Christians who become preterists, which means that everything Jesus talked about uh, in, you know, that was coming has happened in the first century. Well, no. Just some of the things were a short-term partial fulfillment of what he was saying, but then he scoped out to give them a long-term ultimate fulfillment of what was coming. It's important that you understand that. Now, of course, the short-term fulfillment of this prophecy began a couple of months after Jesus rose from the dead and returned back to his Father in heaven. You remember it was on the Feast of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven, poured out by the Father. Remember Jesus told his guys that I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to pray the Father. He's going to send you back another helper, even the Spirit of truth who will abide with you forever. Well, now that promise has been fulfilled. Jesus Christ returned to his Father, prayed the Father that the Father would send another helper the Holy Spirit upon his disciples, and he does. And we see the Spirit of God poured out from heaven upon those early disciples, Acts 2, verses 1 to 4, and the church is born. The church is born. 
Now, a couple of years later, Stephen became the first martyr of the church. And that was uh, at the end of Acts 7. As you turn the page to Acts chapter 8, we read in verse 1 that at that time, at, you know, after Stephen was, was stoned, I should say, was martyred for his faith, at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered, the disciples, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. At first the persecution was limited to those religious leaders of Israel who hated Jesus and his disciples. These would be chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, uh, Sadducees, and so on. These were the leaders of Israel, uh, members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council. Uh, they hated Jesus and his followers. And since most of the first Christians, that when the church was first born, since most of them were Jewish Christians, well, these Jews were immediately put out of the synagogue. They were excommunicated, just like Jesus predicted they would be. The Jewish leadership hated these disciples of Christ, called them tra traitors, I should say, called them traitors to Judaism, and was determined to hunt them down and eliminate all the, those Jews who belonged to this cult called Christianity. That's what they believed. Christianity was a cult. You know who also believed that with all his heart? A young Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, who was an upcoming star in Judaism. Young, brilliant, driven, articulate. I mean, this is the kind of guy you want to take the mantle of whatever group or organization you're involved in, right? This guy's going to take us into the future. It, it, under his leadership, we're going places. And when Saul of Tarsus heard that there was a group of Jewish disciples up in Damascus, Syria, he asked uh, the chief priests to give him letters, basically arrest warrants, to go up there, arrest them, bring them back down to Jerusalem to stand trial, which they gladly did, right? And so here comes Saul with a group of guys walking up to Damascus when all of a sudden he's confronted with a bright light who turns out to be Jesus Christ. And Jesus speaks to Saul, and Saul gets converted, right? In fact, guys, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus was so dramatic that it has actually brought people to Christ who have studied this. Because to have a guy like Saul, who is you know, running 100 miles an hour in one direction, Jew of Jews, persecutor of the Christian faith, on his way up to Damascus to arrest Jewish Christians to bring him down to stand trial in Jerusalem. This guy's going 100 miles an hour in one direction. He hits a brick wall and he's and the, called the Lord Jesus Christ who spins him around and shoots him back out in the other direction 100 miles an hour. But, but for people that have studied the life of Saul and they've gotten saved because what happened? I mean, people that understand this and, and psychologists and things like this have gotten saved because it's like, what would have caused a man so driven like Saul of Tarsus to become a Christian, and later the, the Apostle Paul. Well, Paul said it was he had seen the risen Christ. It, this is no cult. I was on the wrong side. Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do to me. And Saul had his conversion moment on the road to Damascus. Changed his life. He was never the same. Now eventually the persecution grew 
to include the Roman government when Emperor Claudius banished the Jews from Rome in 49 AD. The Roman historian Suetonius writes that Claudius banished Jews from Rome because they were, and I'm quoting, indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus. Crestus. There have been many attempts to try to explain who Crestus was uh, because they have no record of this man in history. Well, this was 70 years after the fact, and many believe that they got the name wrong. It wasn't Crestus, it was Christos, Christ. And what was happening is Jews were getting saved in Rome. There's a strong church there, churches, several, sprinkled around. But so many Jews were getting saved in Rome and went back into their synagogues proclaiming Christos, Christ, Jesus. It created a big uproar in these synagogues, you know? So the Jews in the synagogues threw them out. And after a while, Rome was tired of the constant, you know, uproars. And so they just banished the Jews from Rome in 49 AD. However, at first, guys, it was a religious persecution against the Christian church by the Jews, the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem. Again, members of the Sanhedrin who believed that Christianity was a cult and that they were, listen, serving God by wiping it out. They were serving God by killing these Christians, Jew and Gentile. Remember again what Jesus said in John 16, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that, that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. Now, years later, after Paul has been a Christian for many years, and he's standing before, I think it was Agrippa, giving his testimony. You can read about this in Acts chapter 26. I'll just read you verses 9 to 11. Remember now, he's recounting how he used to persecute the people of God, thinking they were a cult, right? He said, in, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, indicating Saul at one point was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, this is the language of an official vote that he was involved in. The Sanhedrin contained 70 members. And it seems that Saul of Tarsus was one of the members uh, on the Sanhedrin. Now, you had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. And uh, when Saul got converted, I, I imagine he married a gal as zealous for Judaism as he was. This is not a guy that settled for lukewarmness in his life in any capacity, right? After he gets saved, it seems as though his wife left, and that was one of the few things a woman could legally in Judaism divorce her husband over if he stopped being a Jew, if he, if he converted to some other religion. Because Paul speaks very eloquently on marriage, doesn't he? Gives some great insights about marriage. Um, seems like he would know because he was married. But he cast his lot when, uh, when the Stephen gave his defense in Acts 7. And at one point, they got upset because of what he said, and they uh, went out to stone him. They cast their lots. Saul was 
one of those that uh, agreed and actually held the coats of those who were throwing stones at Stephen to uh, kill him. But um, he said, I punished these Christians often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly, en exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So that was the immediate short-term fulfillment of what Jesus said in John 16, too. Now, guys, I believe there was another shorter-term fulfillment, not the ultimate long-term, but another shorter-term fulfillment that Jesus had in mind when he spoke these words, that the time is coming when those who kill you will think they're serving God, right? The people of the true and living God, consisting the Christian church consisting of both Jewish and Gentile believers. Now, Jesus knew this because uh, he's God. But he was prophesying about how that another group would someday emerge. Someday emerge in the beginning of the 7th century. A group that would begin a, a, grand, a brand new religion a religion called Islam, whose followers would be known as Muslims. We know that Muslims worship Allah. Who or what is Allah? Well, to understand Allah, we need to understand Muhammad. Muhammad was a 26-year-old camel driver when he first heard a voice that he, that he later considered to be a revelation from God. Now, in the beginning... He, he, even he didn't know if he was hearing from God or from the jinns, the jinns, the genies, the evil spirits. In time, with the help of his wife, who was 15 years his senior, he came to believe that he was hearing from God, who was calling him to be a prophet. The people of Mecca, did I mention he was uh, born in 570 AD in the city of Mecca in Arabia? I'm not sure if I said that to you. Um, but he went to the people of Mecca, who were members of his tribe, the Koresh tribe. And uh, he told them that he heard from God, and God had called him to be a prophet. Well, they eventually embraced him as a prophet of Allah, okay? And um, word began to spread. Now, it wasn't all just word of mouth. As his numbers grew... He, his army grew. In fact, he made a little uh, treaty with his tribe that he wouldn't attack them because some of them didn't want to believe in him as a prophet. And so he promised, if you just let me live among you uh, and all, uh, I, I'll, I, I promise I won't attack you because he was already attacking other groups. Uh, and the idea was that his guys and him would ride into a town, uh, present Islam, this new religion, and himself as a prophet. Uh, anyone who didn't want to become a member of this new religion was killed. The others, grab your horses and follow us to the next town. That's why Islam spread across Europe like wildfire. Because it was right into the town, present Islam. Uh, no People didn't want to accept. They were killed. rest of the guys, of course, you're terrified. You're, you're right off uh, with Mohammed and his soldiers. After two years of making this treaty with his own people, he broke it when he was strong enough to uh, conquer them. So he took over. I mean, uh, his influence spread all over that part of the world. Uh, you think of Mecca and Medina, two of the holy places for Islam 
uh, in the world. Medina is about 200 miles to the north. So, uh, you know, it, it, his influence began to spread really rapidly, right? And uh, you just, now you know why. But um, as people worshipped, these people that uh, Muhammad was familiar with, I mean, some of them were from his tribe, right? And uh, they worshipped a pantheon of gods, roughly 360, pretty much a god for every day of the year. And when Muhammad became their prophet, he basically told them, and I'm paraphrasing, look, he said, this is old stuff. It's polytheism. Uh, the Christians and Jews, they got it right. They're monotheists. We have to become monotheists as well. Because he realized that, you know, to follow one God was more powerful than spreading everybody's uh, devotions among 360 gods, right? Some people are going to worship this God, some that God. It dilutes the passion. If you have one God, then everyone is devoted to that one God, right? And so he said, look, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to take the greatest of all the 360 gods we worship, Allahi. Allahi was the moon, moon God represented by a crescent moon. We're going to take Allahi and make him our Allah. Allah being the name in Arabic for God, right? Now, many, many people don't realize that Allah is actually a pagan moon god who was worshipped as a warrior god, a sword god. I mean, many people don't know that. They believe that Allah is just another name for the God of the Bible. That's absolutely untrue. Please, if somebody you know is harboring under that misconception, try in a loving way to explain it to them. Allah and the God of Islam and the God of the Bible are not the same God. In, in Islam, Allah is not a triune God. And on top of the dome of the rock on the Temple Mount, one of the most sacred shrines in the Arabic, the Arabic world, on the top, and I don't read Arabic, but I googled it to make sure I had my facts straight, and somebody, it was right. On the top, written in Arabic, it says to the, something to the effect, uh, God is not begotten, neither does he beget. It's a slam against Jesus Christ. This is not our God. This is the moon God that Muslims worship. But guys, there were also three prominent Jewish tribes that inhabited the city of Mecca around the time of Muhammad. When Muhammad approached the Jewish people with his claim to be a prophet of God, he initially thought they would welcome him as well, you know? But they didn't. And yet over a period of time, he tried to win them over, which is why the earlier verses of the Quran are, you know, kind of respectful and accepting of the Jews and Christians as being the people of the book, the Bible. He revered the Bible in the beginning. He was trying to win Jews and, yes, Christians over to his side as a prophet of God. And so initially he was kind of respectful. Some people read the Quran and go, how come there are some verses that seem almost accepting of Jews and Christians and other verses that seem like, wow, uh, he just hates them. Well, what happened was when it became obvious that the Jews and Christians in the area were not going to accept him as a prophet from God, he turned viciously on them and violently. It was then that he began to get these new revelations from Allah that um, telling him and his followers to kill the Jews, the Jews and the Christians. 
because they were the spawn of Satan. They must be purged from the earth. Now some would argue, wait a minute, Muslims believe in Jesus Christ, so how could they hate Jews and Christians? The question is, does Islam, does Islam believe in Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. But beware of counterfeits. Their Jesus is not our Jesus. What do I mean? Well, they believe that Jesus Christ is coming back someday. And according to the teachings of Islam, he's going to be a Muslim. He's going to be a Muslim. In 1994, Yasser Arafat was in Bethlehem in the Church of the Nativity. And he got up and made a speech and said, and I'm quoting him, Jesus Christ was the first Palestinian Muslim revolutionary. Now, where did he get that from? You just make it up? No. Okay. No, it comes from Islamic faith teachings. You see, according to the Hadith, which is the Islamic written tradition, Jesus Christ will come back to the earth the second time to kill the Antichrist, uh, which in Islam they believe is a Jew. Okay, the Antichrist is going to be... Now, I do agree with that. I believe the Antichrist is going to be Jewish. Uh, some people say, well, no, he's going to be a Gentile. I have a hard time understanding how Jews are going to accept a Gentile Messiah. Because the, the Jews are going to believe the Antichrist initially is their Messiah, right? So, you know, there are some that teach that he's going to be a Muslim. How, if, if the Jews aren't going to accept a, a, a Gentile Messiah, you're going to tell me you're going to accept a Muslim Messiah? So I, I believe at very least he's going to be Jewish. Maybe he's half Jew, half Gentile. I don't know what he's going to be, but the Jewish people are going to accept him initially as their Messiah. And this is what um, Islam teaches. But when Jesus returns uh, in, in battle and uh, kills the Antichrist, then he's going to go up to Jerusalem and pray on the Temple Mount with 400,000 Muslim believers. Then this Jesus will lead these Muslims to destroy all the crosses and churches of the Christians and the, all the synagogues of the Jews. And on that day, all the people of the book, all Jews and Christians, will be put to death by the sword of Jesus Christ the Muslim, the enforcer of Mohammed. Now, folks, that's not my Jesus, okay? And I know he's not your Jesus. But this is what Islam believes, sure. Yes, they'll tell you we believe in Jesus, but not our Jesus. Okay, he's an imposter. Now, the question many have is, well, why do Muslims believe that all Christians and Jews need to be killed and removed from the earth? Why? Well, because under Islamic law, the whole world must be Islamized. Islamized, or in other words, brought into submission to Islam before there can be true peace on earth. Now, I was talking to a, a woman one time, and she was trying to tell me what Islam, you know, the Islam was a religion of peace, was a religion of peace and love. This is right after 9-11, okay? And so we were all studying about Islam, okay? And I said to her, well, do you even know what the word Islam means? She goes, yes, peace. I said, no, it means submission. Submission. It's, it's not a religion of peace and love. It's a religion of submission you either submit or die but they believe the whole world has to be islamized before there can be true peace on earth you see in islamic theology they divide the whole world into two groups dara al-islam and dara al-harb 
Dara al-Islam is the house of Islam, containing all true Muslims, also known as the house of peace. Anyone who is not a Muslim belongs to Dara al-Harb, which means house of war. Dara al-Islam cannot have peace on earth until the Dara al-Harb is destroyed. In other words, it's not until all Jews, Christians, and pagans are gone from the earth or converted, killed or converted. It's not until all Christians, Jews, pagans are gone from the earth and the whole world is, is uh, Islamized that there can be peace on earth, which is kind of funny because if there was not a Jew or a Christian on the face of the planet and only Muslims, they would be killing each other. They've always killed each other, okay? Iran, Iraq, you know, uh, you know, if we weren't around to, to hate, they would be fighting each other because they don't even agree on, on everything. There's different factions in, in Islam. But, uh, but okay, putting that aside, okay, um, they believe it's not until every person on the face of the earth is converted to Islam or killed who doesn't want to belong to Islam before there can be true peace on the earth. Um, it's a cardinal doctrine of the Islamic religion. Guys, Islam is a warrior religion. Again, committed to converting the world to Islam or killing those who refuse. That's what jihad is all about. In the Islamic faith, no matter what has to be done to achieve this goal, to win this cause of converting the world to Islam, it's acceptable. Even if it means killing innocent women and children, it's all acceptable because the end justifies the means in Islam because for Islam, fundamentalists, it has to be the whole world is Islamized before peace can come to the earth. Guys, Islam is a brutal, barbaric warrior faith, not a religion of peace. Now, that's not to say that every Muslim is a brutal, barbaric person. Most of them aren't. Most of them don't even really believe in the tenets that, of, of the faith that the fundamentalists of the faith cling to, okay? So m many Muslims, I mean, are just like us. You know, they're loving folks. They have loving families. They just want to work and and provide for their families and have a good life on the earth. I mean, you know, most of them are not of the mindset that we need to kill everybody who doesn't agree with us. But it doesn't take many who do hold to that philosophy to do some great damage in the world, right? It was 19 Muslims that brought down the, tw the uh, Twin Trade Towers 20 years ago. I mean, 19 guys who flew uh, who uh, flew planes into buildings and things that brought this country, and in many ways the world, to its knees. You don't need a lot of radicals to cause major damage, okay? Um, so getting back to Muhammad. Now, so Muslims under the direction of uh, Allah and his prophet Muhammad began killing the Jews, thinking they were doing God a service, a persecution that really continues to this present day. However, guys... The Muslims weren't the only ones who killed the Jews thinking they were serving God. There's another group that also believed that to kill Jews was to do God's service. I'm sad to tell you who it is. It's the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church called for holy wars against Muslims and Jews to liberate the Holy Land from the infidels. And this gave rise to the Crusades. Author Dave Hunt said, and I quote, inspired by Pope Urban II, 
the members of the first crusade went to recover for the church land that belonged to Israel. It was Israel's land, but they went there through the crusades to uh, take this land back for the church. He goes on, plundering, raping as they went along the way, plundering, raping, and murdering all along the way. They slaughtered all the Muslims and Jews in Jerusalem when they took that holy city, quote-unquote, for the Roman Catholic Church. They were acting in direct violation of the teachings of Jesus, whose cross they claimed to carry. Jesus never told us to go out and kill people that didn't agree with us, right? He told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. What, what do we do as Christians? If you preach the gospel to somebody and they say, ah, you're crazy, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. What do we do? Pull out a sword and kill him? We walk away and we pray for him. That's how we handle it, right? That's not how Islam works for many people. Not all, but many, okay? Um, but the crusaders were not acting like Jesus, riding to the Holy Land, killing Jews and Muslims along the way, and then when they got there, butchering all of them to take this land for the church. Hunt says they were acting... Uh, in direct violation of the teachings of Jesus. Not to be outdone by Islam's promise of instant paradise for those who died in jihad, the Pope offered a plenary indulgence remitting all punishments due to sin to those who should fall in the war. In other words, the Pope says, look, if you join my crusade and you go out there you, and you take this land for the church, if you should die in battle, don't worry we got it covered. I'm going to pass an edict or whatever they did. And we're going to say that, you know, so that when you die, all your sins are wiped away. You don't have to spend any time in purgatory. You go right to heaven. Well, my Bible says I go right to heaven anyways when I die. There's no purgatory. Okay? But guys, the Roman Catholic Church remains basically anti-Semitic to this day. Now look, I believe that Jesus' prophecy here in John 16 also had a long-term ultimate fulfillment. I believe he was ultimately speaking of another time, a, a time long after the 1st, the 7th, or even the 11th centuries, a time when Jews would be hunted down and killed by those who believed they were serving God. There's going to be another group of people in the future who are going to be dispatched by a leader, and they're going to go out across the face of the planet, and they're going to kill Jews and, and Gentiles, Christians primarily. And in so doing, they're going to be thinking they're serving God by killing these people. The Bible calls this time in history the Great Tribulation Period. And the one who orders, the one that orders the execution of the Jews from the earth so that to obey his edict causes his followers to believe they are serving God as, of course, the coming world leader we know as the Antichrist. Turn to Matthew 24. Now, if you've been coming out to our study in Revelation, this is common territory for you guys. But because we are in a section where Jesus talks about coming persecution, let's just visit this quickly. Matthew 24, starting at verse 4. Jesus is talking to his disciples about a future time. He's prophesying to them about what's coming. Not in their day, but in the future. He answered and said to them, verse 4, Take heed that no one, what? 
deceives you. This is going to be a time of unprecedented worldwide spiritual deception. This period of time we know as the tribulation period. Verse 5, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. The Greek could be translated beginning of birth pangs. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. I think we're even seeing the beginnings of that right now. But verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. He who endures to the end, escapes the Antichrist's wrath, persecutions, will be saved from the Antichrist. Not saved, uh, go to heaven. I'm just saying, will be saved from the tribulation of those days. Now, many will get saved spiritually, but that's the context here. Verse 14, and uh, he said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those to those who are nursing babies on those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. He's talking about the, the Jerusalem and the Jews living in and around Jerusalem. That's the context. Because why would we care as Gentiles if it's the Sabbath? In Israel, you can't get a bus or a taxi on the Sabbath. It'd be hard to flee if you, this happens on the Sabbath. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be again in the history of the world. Verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, or in other words, I have prophesied to you what's coming in the future. But guys, let's look at verse 9 quickly and we'll close. Because this is kind of an introductory message um, in some ways. But in verse 9, again, the Lord says, They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is going to be the persecution of the Jewish people and, and Christians in general under the Antichrist. Now, I'll give you the, the references. You can write them down look them up later. Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. Revelation 7, verses 9 to 14. Where John sees a vision in heaven of a great group of people that suddenly appears. They're all wearing white robes. One of the elders says to John, who are these people? 
John says, I don't know. You tell me. He says, these are the saints that have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of Christ. These are the martyrs who are being killed by the Antichrist at that moment as they were speaking. This great persecution was unleashed, right? But you need to understand, guys, that this will be a religious persecution by the followers of the Antichrist who think that by following his orders to kill Jews and Gentile Christians is to serve God. Why do they believe this? Well, look it. We just read Matthew 24, 15. Jesus said, When you therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads this, you better understand what I'm talking about. And then Paul elaborates on that. In second, why don't you turn to Second Thessalonians two quickly? Second Thessalonians two, verse three. Paul said, "Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition." So. Before the Antichrist is revealed and rises to power, um, a great apostasy or falling away from the faith has to happen first. But verse 4, this Antichrist, this son of perdition, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the abomination of desolation. When the Antichrist, at the very midpoint of the last seven years, what we call the tribulation period, goes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, forces the worship of the true God to stop, to cease, sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, and demands to be worshipped as God. That is the abomination so egregious that it desolates the temple renders it unusable for the worship of God. Skip over to verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Anyone who is not going to receive the gospel in those days will be susceptible to these to this lie. Verse 11. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. If some of your translations have a lie, that is incorrect. I checked the Greek. The definite article is definitely there. It's the lie. The Antichrist when he comes to power as the leader of a one world government will be hailed by the world initially as a messiah. But he will be a false messiah masquerading as the true Messiah. He will be Satan's man, the devil's masterpiece of deception. And the devil will empower him with supernatural intellect, charisma, and power to work real miracles. He's going to have real supernatural power. He's going to be, I believe, incredibly uh, good-looking. He is going to be incredibly charismatic supernaturally intelligent and he will have real supernatural power 
If you didn't have Jesus' words warning us in advance, well, not us, the church will be in heaven before the Antichrist reveals himself. You're wondering what I mean? Get our study, Revelation 4, verse 1. We talked about this. But the folks living in these coming days, if they didn't have the words of Christ, and they're going to become voracious Bible readers, I'm convinced, telling them what was coming, and not to believe in this man, he's not the true Messiah, I don't care how good look, looking he is, how powerful of a speaker, whatever it might be, he is the devil's counterfeit. And if he hadn't revealed that to that generation, he said even the elect would be deceived. Let me close by saying this. He's going to come preaching a gospel. The word gospel is good, means good news. But it's not going to be the true gospel of Jesus Christ. His followers will think it's great news. Great news. It will be a false gospel. A gospel that will contain nothing more, listen, than doctrines of demons that together will make up the ultimate lie of the devil. The ultimate lie of the devil. This one lie is talked about in Scripture, Romans 1, 25, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11, which we just read, and it, it calls it the lie, the lie. Not a lie as one of many. The world is full of lies. The Bible has in mind, Paul specifically had in mind one specific lie. He called it the lie, indicating this is the lie of all lies. This is the mother of all lies. A lie that goes all the way back to, back to the Garden of Eden. It was the greatest lie the devil, who Jesus called the father of lies in John 8, 44, ever fed the human race, at this point consisting of only two people, Adam and Eve. What is it? Well, let me say this, those living during the tribulation period who reject this lie as being a lie are going to be martyred. The rest of the world are going to enthusiastically line up to embrace this lie and to follow this Antichrist as a God. Come on back next week. We will look at what this particular specific lie is. And then we'll kind of weave it into um, the second part of this little series because we're already taking a lot of this up in Revelation. So, you know, go online or come on out and, and study the book of Revelation with us because we cover all this in detail. And we have a lot more to cover along these lines. We're getting into some of the really heart of what's coming in the future in Revelation. So, but come on back if you want to get your, wet your whistle a little bit, if I can put it that way. Okay. Uh, we'll look at this and um, maybe weave in a couple of other things that would be important to know living in the last days that we're living in. So come on back. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, which is truth. We thank you that, Lord, you always give us the truth, that you don't leave us in darkness, that we are not going to be taken by surprise by anything that's coming. We just ask you to continue to bless these studies for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.